This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. If reading is fundamental, then why do so many American kids struggle with it? Plus, we know about the achievement gap. What about the homework gap? How not having internet at home affects kids' schoolwork. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk, and I should also say trying to stay warm here in Kansas City. So let's introduce them. Elaine Jarden, what do you teach? I'm a school counselor in training. Uh, Jason Staliga, what do you teach? I teach accelerated and general chemistry. And Jamie Myers, the third person at the table today, what do you teach? I teach eighth grade applications. And Elaine, Jamie, and Jason are all educators in the Kansas City metro area, which, like I said, is going through a really bitter cold spell right now as we tape. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode. Also, review some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. Teachers would agree nothing is more fundamental to academic success than reading. Yet the hard fact remains, most American kids are not good readers and haven't been for some time. Consider this. On the latest National Assessment of Educational Progress, it's one of the most trusted standardized tests out there, just a bit more than one-third of both fourth and eighth graders who took the test scored either proficient or advanced on reading. That's incrementally better than NAEP reading scores from the early 90s, but still, considering the resources and time that have gone into improving reading in this country, the sobering reality is the majority of American school children still are not proficient readers. So, why is this the case? Well, here to help us answer that question is Emily Hanford. She's a reporter with American Public Media, and last year she helped report and produce an audio documentary called Hard Words, which appeared in the feed of the APM Reports podcast, Educate, Hard Words, explores why many American school children have not seemingly been taught to read, even though, as the documentary details, there is an approach to successfully teaching reading that's out there, backed up by decades of research. We'll get into that. But first, Emily Hanford, thanks for joining No Wrong Answers. Hi. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, I wonder if you could just start by giving us a sense of the scope uh, of the problem that you discovered in your reporting. I I mentioned the NAEP scores, but really a reading proficiency in America today. How big of a problem is it? Yeah, I mean, you laid it out with the NAEP scores. Um, I think I would point out, even if we don't want to talk about proficiency, even if we just want to talk about basic reading skills, we've got a third of our fourth graders who can't even read at a basic level. So we're talking about really um, low rates of reading ability among uh, a pretty sizable percentage of children in American schools. I might add that this is not just a problem in the United States. It is a problem in much of the English-speaking world. (laughs) Part of the issue is that English is actually a fairly difficult language to learn in comparison to many other languages which have a sort of shallower 
um, there's sort of that it's not a judgment on the languages, but there more there's more correspondence between sounds and letters. So we have sort of two issues in the English speaking world, and it's particularly pronounced in the United States. The language that we speak is challenging to learn compared to other languages. So it takes even typical children longer to learn it than to learn, say, Finnish or Spanish or German. The other problem we have, and I'm really interested in what teachers you all have to say about this, is that we have um, a teacher preparation system in the United States that has overall been fairly weak for quite a long time. I mean, it goes back many decades, and there are many reasons for it. But compared to other professions, teachers do not get particularly in-depth or long preparation compared to other highly skilled and very important professions like the medical profession, the law profession. So for various reasons, the teaching profession, we don't invest as much as we should or could in training our teachers. And what I have found in my reporting it is that in particular, around the issue of reading, um, teachers are not, for the most part, in most teacher preparation programs, getting a very thorough or really much at all on the science of how the brain actually learns to read. And the amazing thing here is that over the past 40 years, there's been this tremendous amount of research, experimental research, uh, demonstration studies, big, huge longitudinal studies that have looked at how children learn to read and how they're taught, and a huge amount has been learned from that. And, and reading is actually one of the most studied aspects of human learning. We know so much about how people learn to read, what skilled reading looks like in the brain, and what goes wrong when people can't read well. And yet that information is not being taught to teachers. I do want to get to, to different approaches to reading instruction, and I do want our, our teachers to weigh in on their experiences being trained. We do have two teachers who have experience as reading teachers. But can you first though, just explain a little bit about what is happening in kids' brains when they're trying to learn to read? I mean, you explain in the documentary Hard Words that reading, in mm -hmm. fact, is not an innate process for humans. You compare learning to reading to learning to talk. Can, mm -hmm. can you say more about that? So when babies are born, um, they will naturally learn to talk as long as they're surrounded by language and people talk to them. Our brains are literally wired to talk. But reading uh, and writing, writing wasn't invented until relatively recently in human history. So our brains are not actually made to read. So when we're born, we don't have reading brains. And we have to go through, our brains have to go through a series of changes to figure out how to read. We basically have to take certain areas of our brain that are actually designed to do other things. We have to kind of change those into, uh, use some of the parts of the brain that are meant for other functions, take them over and use them for reading. And we can do that very well. Like our, our, our brains can actually uh, change themselves to become very, very skilled at reading but it is not natural. The other really key thing to understand about learning is uh, about reading is that while we use our eyes to read, the main thing that is going on in reading has to do with sound. So it is a phonology and understanding the role of phonology is super, super important in reading. 
So what a kid needs to do is when they get to school or when they begin to learn to read, to understand how all these words that she knows, that she hears, that she knows how to say, that she knows the meaning of, she needs to figure out how those sounds and those words translate to these marks on the page, which are just gibberish to a child at first. And they have to, it's a code, uh, written language is a code for speech, and children need to learn that. But there's this kind of initial thing that children need to do to understand the relationships between sounds and symbols. And that's where phonics is so important and why phonics, but it, it's it's more than phonics. We kind of um, get a little bit mired <laughs> in a kind of debate about phonics versus everything else. One of the reasons I made this documentary was try, I think one of the reasons we have fights about phonics and there's a certain kind of fear of phonics out there is that the role of phonics is not well understood. Just how essential phonology is to becoming a skilled reader. And one of the reasons I made that documentary is I wanted to try to explain that. And and, and phonics, of course, being, I guess, the, the more regimented approach to like actually teaching how those those words sounds match up to those symbols on the page. Uh, this is where I did. Yeah, want I just to... want to stop you for one second because I think this is part of how phonics gets kind of a bad name. Phonics is not necessarily regimented. I mean, phonics simply means under is being taught that there is a relationship between letters and combinations of letters and sounds. And there's it can be done in a lot of ways. I've been in a lot of kindergarten and first grade classrooms over the past few years where it can be done in a really fun and interesting way. So it's it's not about worksheets or sort of drill and kill kind of teaching. And the other really important thing is that it doesn't begin with phonics. Um, it really begins with phonemic awareness. So children need to understand because they, they don't necessarily get this right away. And some kids get it much quicker than others. But they need to be able to discern the fact that words are made up of, of distinct sounds. So one of the things that you would want to do in a kindergarten classroom if you're teaching aligned with the science of reading is to begin with a lot of focus on phonemic awareness, potentially before you even get to print having children write or read, is because the, the first step in being able to read is understanding that words are made up of sounds. And then you eventually get to phonics where you start to teach children the relationship between the sounds and the letters. And so I think the the big point or one of the big points of, of hard words is to show that there's just a lot of teachers out there who simply aren't aware of that science and that research, or if they are aware of it, they're resistant to it. And um, I did want to bring our teachers in um, to kind of talk about their experiences, but I just first wanted to ask you, um, why has there been that that, that ignorance or resistance um, to some of the research-based methods that have proven effective at teaching, reading, and building up these things like phonemic awareness and the skill of phonics that you've been talking about? I want to say that in my reporting, I have not found a lot of resistance among teachers. I think mostly teachers um, just aren't taught this, so they don't know it. And when they start to learn it, uh, for the, my experience is the teachers are super, super open to it and want to learn more about it. Where I found the resistance in my reporting, and there's a lot of other research that's been done on this, um, is really in colleges of education. Um, so there is a resistance to this science that goes back to debates we've actually had for a really long time about how reading works and specifically goes, goes back to like the 1980s and 90s when there we had the reading wars, when there were real fights 
over a phonics approach and a perception and probably a reality in some places that phonics was kind of a regimented drill and kill kind of way to teach children to read. And then another approach that was known, um, is still known as whole language, um, which really has as its theoretical core more of the belief that, that, that you should teach children to read much the same way that they learn to talk uh, because it is uh, in, in a lot of the sort of foundational whole language writings and theories. Um, the idea is that reading is natural um, and that it will be a more joyful experience for children if you m motivate them to want to read and you activate their interest in reading first so that's kind of the mechanism for how skilled reading happens in whole language is that it's through motivation and that children basically learn to read through reading. And what the science shows very clearly is that's not actually how it works. Um, and so I think the resistance um, is really more among the teacher educators um, because many people ended up with dogs in that fight between phonics and whole language, and it has lingered for a long time. But as a result, generations of teachers weren't taught this information in their teacher preparation, and they're still not being taught it very well. Yeah. There is a nod to phonics in some places, um, but it's actually amazing how much I've found there's really very little to no phonics in some places, or even people who tell tell their students who are going to be teachers that, you know, to be careful of phonics and that the National Reading Panel, which was this big report that came out in 2000, you know, has been debunked and you should be suspicious of it. Um, there's really a lot of suspicion of the science and of the phonology part and of phonics uh, in uh, among many teacher preparation programs, not all. Um, but many. Yeah, and so for, for our teachers who went through teacher prep programs, we have a couple of teachers who actually went on to become reading teachers. I, I wonder what your experiences were and if you have any thoughts or, or questions for Emily Hanford, who um, reporter for uh, American Public Media. <clears throat> Excuse me. To be transparent, Jamie and I went to the same teacher preparation program at the exact same time and were prepared in the exact same way. <clears throat> and one of the big conversations we had right out of school was because we were trained as secondary language arts teachers, we were not trained as reading teachers. So even though we taught literature, no one ever taught us about how to help kids read. And it was really hard because we had kids in our classes that struggled and we had no idea how to help them even after five years of teacher prep. Yeah, our <clears throat> training was particularly, um, at the time, longer than a lot of the other surrounding prep programs. <clears throat> so like Elaine said, after five years, not having any phonics training, we went into our first classes, and I had sixth graders, so that was the lowest I could teach as six through 12 certification. And many of them were reading on a third or fourth grade level. So, And you weren't given the <clears throat> phonics background because there was the assumption that you wouldn't need it. By right, the, we taught right. secondary school. Yeah. Right. By the time that they were in sixth grade, they should have had that phonics training. Yeah, uh, Emily Hanford, what uh, Elaine and Jamie are, are talking about, uh, you spent a lot of your reporting at, at uh, lower grades, elementary grades, but is, is what they're saying resonating with some of the things you saw? Absolutely. Um, and, it's, and I've had a lot of response from people who are middle and high school teachers um, who are saying exactly what you're saying, which is, wow, I have had a lot of struggling readers and I had no idea what to do. 
So, I mean, two things. If we were really teaching all kids to read really well at the early grades, uh, you shouldn't really have to know that much (laughs) about how to teach kids to read at those older grades. But that aside, I actually think that this base, the basics of this science of reading is so fundamental and has actually so many implications for just how learning works that I think that all teachers should get some introduction to it. And there are kids who are going to struggle even if they get really great instruction. So, you you know, in an ideal world, if we like fix this bang up and they and everyone gets just like fabulous reading instruction K-1-2, um, you shouldn't really have very many struggling readers, um, but you might have some. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, you I mean, one of the things that's really compelling is that the research shows there's so many studies that have been done that show that really there's maybe one to five or six percent of people who, for whatever reason, because of some condition that they have issues with the way their brain works, they're really not going to be able to be very skilled readers. But we should really be seeing like 95% of kids be skilled readers. So you, you shouldn't really have to deal with, <laughs> with, with um, you know, kids who are struggling with reading at those ages. Um, but it's all over the place yeah, well, in I the wonder, United States. Uh, and Elaine yeah. and Jamie, once you got to the classroom and realized there was this gap in, in your ability to teach the kids who needed certain skills, what did you do? I turned right back around and went to grad school and took a bunch of classes in reading instruction. And honestly, Uh, the things that were the most helpful were the ones about teaching speakers of other languages to learn English. mm -hmm. That's where I learned Mm -hmm. the most about how to actually teach someone how to read. So is that where you got, I mean, lessons and courses on on phonics and phonemic awareness? Yes, exactly. It was all through teaching English as a, you know, as a foreign language almost rather than teaching native speakers. Yeah, I have a... endorsement in ESL. And that's actually where I learned more about, like Elaine Mm -hmm. said, trying to get kids to recognize different phonemes and how to pronounce them if they were coming from a different, like they weren't native speakers. And that's actually a good point why all teachers really should have some basic knowledge of this, because you're going to have English language learners, even if you, you know, even if all the kids who grew up speaking English were great uh, readers of text, uh, you're still going to have English language learners, which is why I think I would argue that everyone should learn it. So I, one, of the, one of the key ideas in the research about reading that I explain in the documentary, um, and every teacher should learn this in their teacher preparation program, it's called the simple view of reading. And it's basically a model that explains skilled reading. And it's not a model that's like a theory that someone made up. It's a model that has been backed up by all kinds of experimental research and evidence. But it basically says that your reading comprehension, like how well you comprehend what you read, is the product of your decoding skills, your ability to read those words on the page, times your language comprehension, your vocabulary, your spoken vocabulary. So that if you can teach kids to decode really well at a young age, their reading comprehension will basically equal their language comprehension. But of course, the issue is that a lot of kids don't have very high language comprehension. Their spoken vocabularies, because they've grown up in poor families, they haven't been maybe exposed to lots and lots of language, maybe they haven't been read to a ton at home. So they have kind of a ceiling 
on their reading comprehension because they can only understand on the page as much as they understand, <laughs> as much as the language that they know. But of course, this is why this Matthew effect thing kicks in really quick because how do children gain vocabulary? How does anyone gain background knowledge and vocabulary? Well, very, very quickly, it's through reading. So what happens is you have kids who come into school. Some kids have very high vocabulary, a lot of language comprehension. Other kids are way behind on that. You come into school, you teach all those kids to decode. You're still going to have differences in reading comprehension because one group of kids has a much better vocabulary than the others and more background knowledge. But if you don't teach the decoding, <laughs> you cannot read if you cannot decode. So you teach the decoding, and then those kids who were behind on the language, first of all, you need to have in your classrooms rich experiences with vocabulary, teaching vocabulary, doing reading out loud, having kids understand and gain background knowledge. But one of the key gifts you give a young child is if you teach them how to decode text, they now can go learn on their own. If they become readers and start reading, it's this multiplicative effect where their vocabulary and their background knowledge increase exponentially. This is the achievement gap in America <laughs> because what happens is those kids who cannot read and cannot decode well at a young age are not then reading and gaining and you see this, you know, this huge difference start to, to um, this, this huge divide between the kids who can decode and have vocabulary and language skills and background knowledge and then the kids who can't. And then one of the reasons why I got into this is dyslexia, kids with dyslexia are an interesting uh, phenomenon within here. So I, I started, I got into this reporting because I did a bunch of reporting about kids with dyslexia. And what happens is kids with dyslexia do have some differences in the ways that they process, that the way they learn to read. Most of them have differences, uh, difficulties with the phonology part of it. It's very hard for people with dyslexia, most people with dyslexia, to discern the different speech sounds in words. Their brains just have a much harder time doing it. So one of the things that dyslexia reveals is you've got a bunch of kids who come from affluent homes. They've been read to since they were young. Their house is full of books. They're being exposed to all kinds of background knowledge and vocabulary through the adults who are speaking to them. And they get to first grade and they're really struggling with reading. And so it, it, it shows that very, very like crucial element of decoding. And they need a lot more help with the skills of understanding the ways that sounds work in language. But the big profound takeaway from here is that what kids with dyslexia need is not substantively different than what all kids need to learn to become skilled readers. It's just that if you have dyslexia, you probably need just much more of it, much more intensity. But there's, you know, there's a mistaken idea out there that, well, oh, well, we have all, most of our kids are kind of in some schools, most of the kids are doing fine. Our reading instruction is working fine. And then there's these kids with dyslexia and we need to give them special services or put them in special ed and get them something different. No, we actually need to teach all kids how to read in the way that the brain actually learns to read and then identify the kids who are still struggling. And those kids probably have dyslexia and they may need to be pulled out and worked with one-on-one -on -one because they need 10 doses of the phonics lesson rather than one. Yeah, well, you do you do document an interest, I mean, call it a, I don't know, a complacency or, pa or a passivity within 
uh, teaching and education where there's kind of been this acceptance that there's just going to be a certain percentage of kids who are just going to struggle with reading, and that's just kind of the way it is, and there's all kinds of excuses given for that. They they grew up in a poor home, or they grew up um, in an English like, as a second language home, um, and not a, a maybe a real critical look at, at the actual practices being done in schools. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, poverty matters. It has an impact on all of this. I mean, there's just no way, two ways about that. Poverty has an impact. But kids who grew up in poor homes can become skilled readers <laughs> if they're taught well. Almost all of them can. Um, and so I do think that, that poverty is used as an excuse. Um, it's the way we explain why so many kids can't read. But the research is just so clear that you that I mean, researchers have done these studies. They've gone into poor schools and they've used ways of teaching reading that are backed up by the evidence of how the brain actually learns to read. And 95, 96, 98, 99 percent of those kids can become skilled readers. I know Jason. Our, it just can't happen. <laughs> Jason, our science teacher, has a question. I do have a I do have a question. Uh, in my science education, we did reading in the content area, so we just counted a number of words in a paragraph and determined what level book that it was for those children. But I was chair of professional development for a school of 2,500 kids and 250 teachers. And uh, we talked a little bit about trying to close that gap between teacher preparatory programs and professional development at a local level. And so I was wondering, as you've done your research across the country, uh, what types of professional development have you seen uh, in districts or across the state that have helped to uh, close the gap for teachers who may not have received the preparation they needed in their schooling to help kids be better readers? Well, um, I think there are a number. I think you can find school districts all over the country and schools um, that are that are doing this. Uh, I think, sadly, you can also find a lot that did do it, you know, a few years ago and actually saw some really great results. And then a new leader comes in with a different idea or someone has some other, you know, idea uh, is really wedded to some old ideas about how reading works and it all falls apart. Um, so so um, the scale of making the change um, is difficult and then sustaining it is really difficult too. And I also think like what you guys just talked about, about how you were motivated and you did this learning on your own and you sought out resources to do it on your own. Like that is so amazing. So many teachers around the country are doing that. And if you step back for a moment, it's so unfair to you. Like I, I have met so many teachers who have spent their weekends on their own, just reading about this. They've spent their own money, thousands of dollars to go get training They've sought, they wanted to go get master's degrees. And once you know this stuff and you look around, you realize that a lot of the places where you get master's degrees isn't going to teach you this stuff about reading. So they like on their own, try to find a program where they're really going to learn this science. And that's like that, that's a sort of shocking state of affairs. And I think in this country, we ask teachers to do way too much already. They're like way too much on your shoulders. So the idea that you on your own are going to have to go out and like figure out how reading works and then how you help a sixth grader learn to read, like I think unfortunately that's the situation we're in. So thank God there are people like you who are willing to do that. But at a, at a system-wide level, it's just it's shocking and outrageous, and it shouldn't be that way. Well, Emily – Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Emily Hanford, uh, a reporter with American Public Media, uh, her audio documentary Hard Words uh, came out late last year. And you can find that at APM Reports online, or you can also go to uh, their Educate 
podcast, and it's in that podcast feed as well. But Emily Hanford, thank you so much for, for your work and for sharing uh, what you found with us. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope it was helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. What some people call a homework gap continues to grow in U.S. schools. That gap is between students with reliable home Wi-Fi access and those without. The issue is especially pronounced in rural areas where it's estimated about one in five students do not have reliable home Wi-Fi. It's an even bigger problem for minority students in rural areas. Nearly half of them don't have reliable home Wi-Fi, according to research. But this issue of a homework gap raises bigger questions like what does an increasingly frantic drive for more digital technology in schools mean for how students learn? How is that same technology push changing teachers' curriculum? And even more basically, what is homework good for in the digital age? Well, Jamie, by design, I want to go straight to you because okay. you teach in a more rural or, or exurban area, consider whatever you want to call it, just outside of Kansas City. Sure. Um, so I guess what is the Wi-Fi situation for your students and their families? Do you feel that they are at a disadvantage um, in that regard compared to students in more suburban or urban areas? Um, in general, I would say that most of my students don't necessarily have home Wi-Fi, but the... Most. Most yeah, of your students, yeah really, I mean, huh? they they can use their phones, so that's kind of what parents rely on. Like and on like an LTE, like an LTE or five G network. Yeah, just yeah, but, yeah just use the network rather than actually have um, oh. internet. You know, uh, I mean, maybe maybe fifty fifty, but that's still kind of a huge number of kids who don't have it. Um, and so after I looked at some of the resources for today. Um, we actually have a district foundation that supports the education, you know, that their students are trying to get. And we have put Wi-Fi on our buses and we have Wi-Fi hotspots that students can check out. So we have those tools, but the the Wi-Fi checkouts are only available to the high school kids because those students have um, their Chromebooks checked out to them full time. So middle school students don't have that same luxury, but they still do have the Wi-Fi on the buses. Do you you know why such a high percentage of your kids do not have Wi-Fi at home? Do, do you talk to them about it? Do you know why um, their families don't have it? Mostly it's, the, you know, they're a low SES, so that, like low-income families. Um, a lot of the times they're spending their money on their phones, so they don't, I mean, uh, they don't have cable, they don't have internet, they don't have a lot of, you know, the things that some of us take for granted. And they also get their kids to school at like 7:20 so that they can use the the school Wi-Fi and and they rely a lot on the well, school. Well, I was going to ask like how does it affect their work? Um their so ability to complete work. <clears throat> the 8th grade team that I teach with are all very understanding. We always have like a 2-day policy as far as homework goes if there's homework assigned. I personally don't believe in homework, so I don't send stuff home if I don't like if I I will give you time in class. So really if you're dinking around in class and you don't get it done in class, that's on you and you need to figure out, you know, how to take care of that. But for the most part, the students that I see in my classroom are getting the time in the class to get stuff done. And I also don't spend a lot of my homework on the internet. Like any of the work that we do can be found in the Google Classroom, but it's not necessarily assigned through the Google Classroom or, you know, through an internet 
technology. I I'm try, I, I tell my kids a lot that I feel like they're addicted and they don't even know it to technology. And so I'm trying to take some time stepping back, working on handwriting things that they they hate doing that. Like, this, it sounds like a very paradoxical <laughs> situation where you have a, a high percentage of your kids who don't have Wi-Fi at home yet um, spend a lot of time <laughs> online um, yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. of the, yeah. because of their smartphones. Just to put some more numbers on this before we, we bring in Jason and Elaine. So a report published last year by the U.S. Department of Education found that overall – about 80%, 80% of eighth graders use a computer at home to complete their schoolwork during the week. But 18% of students in rural areas, about one in five, have no access to the internet or have only a dial-up connection. And that's compared to 7% of students in suburban areas. Um, for all of you at the table, I, I guess, and Jamie started to get into it at the tail end of that last answer, uh, do you find yourselves uh, orienting your curriculum and your homework, if you do give homework, around the internet, around digital technology? A lot of my homework deals with uh, lab analysis and, and, and data analysis that we've often done in class or, or deals with uh, uh, especially in accelerated uh, mathematical computations that don't necessarily involve the Internet. Uh, so I would say about 80 to 90 percent of my homework that I do give uh, is mostly or mostly involves what we did in class, the lessons we did in class or uh, the notes that was that were provided in class, Elaine, as a counselor, what what are you seeing at your school? I guess from a from a more bird's eye view of what you're seeing kids assigned and how teachers are using it, uh, the the internet or digital technology. I think there's a large expectation that kids will use the internet. We have several assignments um, that teachers assign through Google Classroom using DocHub. Um, they're also expecting a lot of things to be typed and. While some teachers are very understanding of the fact that kids, we also don't have one-to-one as far as going home. So there are kids that have access to their network, but they don't have a device where they can do word processing or get into DocUp or whatever it might be. Um, and then you have others that are like, well, if they really cared, they could go to the public library. And it's like, well, that ignores yeah, t- a, a lot teacher of- saying this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which, I mean, I, I work with middle schoolers. They can't drive. Like, getting mm-hmm. around town is really hard for them and can be really hard for their families. So I think it's a conversation we probably need to have as a building about how how we're going to move forward with this. Same thing with parents. Um, there are teachers that are like, I've emailed so-and-so's parent. And it's like, well, do you know that they're getting, getting that email? Yeah. Do you yeah. know that they... Do you have a read receipt on it? Like maybe try calling them, and lo and behold, a lot of times you can get them. There's the assumption that that, that everyone will have email and use it, and that everybody knows how to function within those programs too. (laughs) Easy for teachers who probably go through 75 emails a day (laughs) to have that assumption. Right, right. Well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Puerto Rico's education secretary estimates it will take $11 billion, that's billion with a B, to repair the island's school system, which is still trying to recover from extensive damage suffered nearly a year and a half ago during Hurricane Maria. Some of the island's 856 schools still need basic things like mold remediation and structural repairs. To put that $11 billion estimate in context, Ed Week points out that would be roughly one-seventh of the annual U.S. Department of Education's entire budget. 
In Florida, public school districts are struggling to find enough qualified people to carry concealed weapons on school campuses. The School Guardians program grew out of the response to last year's shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The Guardian program allows some district employees who are not classroom teachers to carry concealed weapons. And some advocates are pushing for that program to be expanded. But an analysis by the Tampa Bay Times found many school districts in the past year have had trouble finding enough people to fill the slots that they have now. Coming up, kids these days. Uh, <laughs> coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Elaine, what are your kids into? So we have been doing this thing called a reality check on Missouri Connections. And basically, kids have to pick what region of the state they want to live in after high school and then where they're going to like where they're going to live are they going to live with their parents are they going to have a house whatever car utilities all that and at the end it calculates how much money you need to make a month and a year to support that lifestyle In and it end. is amazing <laughs> it's amazing give us an example so you know kids will be like i'm going to get a house and an suv and i'm going to spend 500 dollars a month on clothes and i'm going to eat out for every meal and they just like build their dream lifestyle Right. And then they get to the end and they're like, that's one hundred thousand dollars a year. And it's like, "Uh uh-huh. And you want to do nails. So maybe we should go back and like reevaluate parts of that. Either you need a new career path or you need. But anyway, it's called a reality check. If you're a resident of Missouri, you can log on to Missouri Connections yourself and take the quiz. See what it says, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it sounds like a lot, like for you. It sounds and like for a lot them. of fun. Yeah. They love it because then there are also kids, you know, that are like, oh man, like I want to be a whatever, whatever. Like I want to be a welder and they make $80,000 a year and I only need 55 for my lifestyle, so I'm going to have extra. And it's like, great, that's the ideal. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, what are your kids into? Oh, um, well, most recently, most of my students are into like, uh, like reenacting old vines. I guess all of the old vines from the the app. Um, because vine vine is no longer. It a doesn't thing. no, yeah, and that's yeah. the thing. It's like, yeah. why are you doing this? This died. <laughs> Let it die. And they are, are all posted on YouTube now. And so all of the kids, you know, I'll have three or four kids in the middle of class just break into a vine, and I'm like, what even is this? And they're like, it's a vine. Haven't you seen it? I'm like. No. Give, me, give us an example of, of one thing that they break into in class. Oh, man. Like, like diving across the room? <laughs> no, <tripping>. well, <laughs> it's, the vines are more of like, like they'll reenact like the, the wording of it. Mm. And so there was a vine of this little boy who dressed up in two different characters. And that this happened on Friday. Like I had two guys just break into like one chose randomly. One started it, and the other one just jumped right in and reenacted it with him. And I'm just like, "What is this?" And they're like, "Here, we can show you." And I'm like, "I don't even want to know. I didn't. Let, I wasn't a part of it in the first place." When it let existed. the vine die. Let it die. Uh, Jason, what are your kids into? Well, knowing we had a secondary panel today, I reached out to a elementary teacher, oh. and yeah, and doing some research, nice. Uh, nice. not on the internet, face to face, and uh, uh, and part of her mindfulness. Uh, activities, she has brought in cosmic kids yoga. And so the yoga is actually tied to like Disney films 
and kind of back to your point, it kind of reenacts different elements of mm-hmm. the film, but it ties it back into yoga. So as she's doing like her transitions between units, uh, she brings in this cosmic kids yoga uh, in order to help her kids. So uh, they do the yoga in the classroom. They do the yoga in the classroom. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Which is a great take on you know diversifying. Uh, the patterns of, of children. Yeah. yeah. Get a little bit of kinesthetic in there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Elaine Jordan, Jamie Myers, Jason Staliga. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodep, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com, and sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers.